You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 8th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... I think it is wise to be prepared for a long war, and it is wise to give Putin the message that we are ready. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is heading to Washington. He may be able to persuade Joe Biden of the message, but what of the Republican Party? In the Netherlands, coalition talks have collapsed. Where does this leave the Dutch government now? We'll look to China, where Mexico's just overtaken the nation as the top exporter to the US. And the stock market is feeling the pain. Plus... Victory for Ukraine also means to succeed in democratic transition of our country to build sustainable democratic institutions. We hear from the head of the Center of Civil Liberties, the Ukrainian organization that shared the Nobel Peace Prize in 2022. And we'll have a roundup of fashion news and get the lowdown on the luxury property market in Dubai. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. a look at what else is happening in the news. Republicans in the United States Senate have defeated a bipartisan effort to bolster border security that had taken months to negotiate, but said they could still approve aid for Ukraine and Israel that has been tied up in the deal. Pakistan temporarily suspended mobile phone services today and closed its borders with Iran and Afghanistan to strengthen security as voting began in the country's national election. And the world has just experienced its hottest January on record, continuing a run of exceptional heat fuelled by climate change, the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service said this morning. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now that Europe has signed off on an aid package for Ukraine, German Chancellor Olaf Schulz will be meeting the US president in Washington later this week in the hope that the EU's success can bolster Biden's attempts to do the same. The US and Germany are Kyiv's first and second biggest military backers, respectively, and have sent a great deal of support to Ukraine, but there are fears this will slow amid war fatigue and political infighting in Washington. Well, I'm joined now by Suda David Wilp, who's a regional director of the German Marshall Fund's Berlin office, and by Christopher Miller, Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times in Kyiv. Welcome to you both. Uh, Christopher, if I could start with you and the reaction from Ukraine to this new tranche of EU funding. Well, of course, uh, Kiev is is desperate for this funding. It's it's very pleased that uh, the, the the EU is able to provide it uh, to to Ukraine. Um, they're hoping for more long term support. It's certainly a positive sign from the EU. The big concern right now um, is is the United States and what is happening in Congress. Um, this this uh, passage of, of of a sixty billion dollar new assistance package for Ukraine is crucial for Ukraine to keep up its fight and defense against Russia's ongoing invasion. Uh, the soldiers that I'm talking to are already having to ration um, their artillery. Uh, they're facing an increased uh, assault by Russian forces on the front line. So it, it's 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 great that the EU has provided this this assistance. 
Um, but what is really crucial at this particular moment in time is m- new military assistance in this aid package uh, from the United States. Absolutely. I mean, Suda, both Biden and the majority of his partner and, and the EU may wish for the US to release more funds to Ukraine. But as we've heard, the Senate just rejected the bipartisan bill, which would have assured that. They'll vote today on just the aid part of the bill. How much hope do you have that that will go through? And is it up to, to Schultz to really push that? I'm not sure um, whether Chancellor Schultz has leverage when it comes to persuading Republicans. He'll certainly try to perhaps talk to some of the senators later this week. But I think it's also the fact that um, aid to Ukraine and the United States has unfortunately fallen prey to partisan politics. And although many senators also see the value in supporting Ukraine, it's in the U.S. national interest, um, the House is a harder place um, because Many people, uh, many members in the House are taking cues from President Trump, who's been very sceptical about um, aiding Ukraine. Mm. I mean, Christopher, what's been the reaction in, in Ukraine to the GOP's intransigence? Well, there's 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 shock, uh, first of all. Um, you know, the uh, bipartisan support that Ukraine has enjoyed is, is uh, uh, s- sort of fracturing um, at this particular moment in time. Uh, Ukraine knows uh, what is at stake. Uh, the... Uh, the lives of its soldiers, um, its its infrastructure, the lives of its civilians that are under uh, constant Russian missile attack. We woke up here in Kiev uh, yesterday morning to another missile bombardment from Russia that killed four people in the capital, injured 39 more, destroyed high-rise buildings. Uh, every day that goes by, it's more lives lost. Um, you know, they're 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 counting. Uh, they're, they're counting this in, in lives lost each day that uh, the uh, Congress fails to pass this um, this this crucial piece of legislation. And Sudor, I wonder if beyond the US, we know that Germany is the biggest funder of Kyiv. Is there a sense that this may tail off? How committed is the German government to supporting Ukraine? I think Germany has really made a tremendous transition in terms of seeing the um, huge risk that the continent is facing with this land war. And um, Germany is in it for the long haul. The question is, how fast can it deliver military aid? Um, you know, there is also a lot of bureaucracy here. They may not be able to send aid and military equipment fast enough simply because the supply is not there. And also, I think it is also a matter of, you know, distill the hesitation upon the German government about the kind of equipment that um, Ukraine receives because um, they are still nervous about a reaction from Russia. And there was the whole debate about sending long-range Taurus missiles to Ukraine, which some people think is absolutely necessary for um, Ukraine to gain some headway on the battleground. Mm. I mean, Christopher, in terms of reaction from Russia, Russia, do you think that these ferocious missile and drone attacks across the last couple of days have been a Russian reaction to the increased funding by the EU and possibly a warning to the U.S.? No, I don't think we can see them as a warning. I think this is very much a part of, of Russia's ongoing uh, assault across Ukraine. Um, Putin has said repeatedly, uh, in, including in, in December during his um, uh, large press conference, that Russia's goals um, set out in February of 2022 have not yet been uh, been met. Um, they are certainly after the complete capture of uh, several eastern Ukrainian and, and, and southern Ukrainian regions. Uh, you know, so this is not necessarily a warning. I think this is um, a, more a, a signal that it will keep up um, its, its, its attacks. Um, you know, I think it's emboldened by the uh, uh, failure of, of the United States to uh, support uh, Ukraine in this uh, new legislation and the struggles going on there and, and, the, and the polarization of society. 
I think that it, uh, Russia also believes that while the EU is providing this new funding to Ukraine, that perhaps in the long run, it may not be able to do so. Mm. And Suda, there, there are media reports about changes being made in the military hierarchy in Ukraine. Do you think that if Zelensky swaps out his army chief, this might be a problem for those supporting the country's war efforts, particularly Germany? I mean, how much does Germany seek to control the narrative here? I mean, I think uh, Germany is just uh, concerned about being lockstep um, with the United States and other European partners. Um, of course, I'm sure behind the scenes there is an effort to make sure that Ukraine aid is used in the correct manner. But, you know, for the most part, I think Germany and its partners see the battle um, as also a defense against the West and against the uh, and to protect the rules based international order. So I, I really I'm doubtful that Germany would necessarily critique um, tactics on the ground in Ukraine when Germany's um, armed forces are, are not necessarily a um, you know huge fighting force today. Mm. And Suda, what else do you think will be on the agenda in the meeting between Schultz and Biden on Friday? Well, I think this is really a chance for the two leaders to meet one-on-one before both are consumed by electoral politics in both countries. Germany is also facing crucial state elections in the former East Germany. They're going to talk about Ukraine, of course, trying to find a sustained manner to support the country. And also, of course, the 75th anniversary of NATO will be celebrated this summer in Washington. And I do believe both um, President Biden and um, Chancellor Schultz are not keen on granting Ukraine immediate NATO membership. And I'm sure Chancellor Schultz will want to make sure that both stay coordinated on that message this summer. And do you think they'll be talking about Gaza and a possible peace pile? Certainly, the Middle East will also be an important topic. Um, Germany has also pledged to send a frigate to the um, Middle East because as a uh, country that depends on trade, they're certainly watching what's going on in the Red Sea. Mm. Now, Sweden has dropped its investigation into the explosions in 2022 on Nord Stream pipelines carrying Russian gas to Germany. It says it lacks jurisdiction in the case, but it has handed its evidence over to German investigators. How keen do you think Germany is to continue this investigation? You know, I'm certain that um, the powers that be will be um, conducting investigations, but whether this comes to light, the findings right now, I don't know if that in the short term is a priority. I believe that Germany and its partners are concerned about defending Ukraine and making sure, as um, Christopher mentioned, that the resolve um, is maintained within Europe because um, it's great that the EU was able to pass this uh, aid package But, um, you know, what happens next year and the year after, there's also crucial EU elections in June. So I do think that um, although there has been good news out of Brussels, the question is, will um, the EU be able to find um, a common stance on helping Ukraine for the long term? Mm. And Christopher, resolve in Ukraine itself, I mean, we've been talking briefly about perhaps a change in the military structure. Is that going to affect uh, the, the, the dedication of people to carry on the fight? That's certainly the big question and and part of the debate um, uh, around this uh, uh, looming um, reshuffle that Zelensky has has talked about and we've reported. Um, You know, uh, General Zaluzhny is someone who's very well liked among um, Ukraine's civil society, but also um, very, very well respected within the rank and file military. And it's going to be crucial for Zelensky to put someone who is, uh, you know, even half as respected as Zaluzhny is in in place of him if he does uh, remove him in the coming days or weeks. Um, you know, morale 
is a big issue right now as, as Ukraine struggles to defend itself with a shortage of weapons and ammunition. You know, the only thing that is holding uh, soldiers and their units together right now is their, their common defense, um, the unity that we have seen from the Ukrainians over the last couple of years. So if that fractures, certainly that could have a major impact, uh, not only on the battlefield, but, but in the uh, national resolve that we've come to know so well. So why get rid of Zeluzhny? There are some uh, personal uh, politics involved. Um, Zaluzhny is a very popular uh, figure in the country, the most popular, in fact, according to to polls. Um, Zelensky is known to be uh, uncomfortable with uh, other political figures um, and military figures being as popular or more popular than himself. But he's also looking to uh, answer for the failed counteroffensive of last summer. So uh, General Zeluzhny certainly being in charge of that counteroffensive is facing some questions by Zelensky's government. There have been differences also in um, strategy. Zelensky, um, while a political leader, is also the country's supreme commander-in-chief. He has been known to uh, order, make, make orders um, to the military about what they should be doing and at times is known to have gone around General Zeluzhny to other uh, commanders uh, to dictate orders. And so there is a chain of command issue. Um, it looks like Zelensky is doing this partly to get everybody on the same page, um, a common message, a common uh, uh, strategy for the military going forward. Christopher, thank you very much indeed. That was Christopher Miller there. And we also heard from Suda David Wilp. This is The Globalist. <laughs> It's 8.14 in Amsterdam, 7.14 here in London. Last November, the far-right Party for Freedom, led by Gert Wilders, won an astonishing victory in the Dutch elections. Since then, the country's been embroiled in coalition talks, which collapsed last night as a key kingmaker quit the discussions. Well, I'm joined now by Stefan de Vries, who's European Affairs Correspondent for Euronews and BNR News Radio, based in Amsterdam. Stefan, many thanks for joining us on the programme. What led to the breakdown? of the talks. Good morning. Well, the uh, kingmaker, as you name it, Peter Omtzigt, is actually a newcomer in the Dutch party system. He already was a an MP for the Christian Democrats, then went rogue, uh, started his own party and had a huge success. So now he's the third party in the country. Um, and he actually left the table of the negotiations because uh, of what he saw as huge financial risks for the country. Um, he had asked the different ministries to um, give an assessment of the uh, national uh, uh, budget for the next couple of years and he was shocked actually uh, to see that there would be enormous financial risk if there would be a right-wing coalition because the two uh, right-wing parties, the PVV of Gert Wilders and the BBB which is a farmer lobby party actually, uh, they promised a lot of things to their voters which would cost uh, a lot of money in the eyes of Peter Omsig. So there were four t- uh, parties negotiating negotiating. Uh, uh, since almost three months, the elections were in November, um, and uh, now suddenly, to the surprise of the three others, Peter Omsig decided to leave uh, the negotiations and, and basically um, close the door uh, to any uh, possible right-wing Dutch government. I mean, he alleges that he was lied to, or at least that the truth was kept from him, and I wonder what it is that his new social contract party stands for and how important it is. 
Well, his party is actually um, a, a conservative party, but he, uh, Peter Omsig, became famous in the Netherlands because he was always very critical towards the government uh, when it comes to their methods and the respect of the rule of law. So uh, his program is was actually based on restoring faith in uh, political institutions, restoring faith in, in the government, uh, because they have quite a few scandals over the last couple of years that has damaged the reputation of the government um, and the um, uh, government institutions. Um, so he was actually a sort of a crusader in favor of more democracy, more transparency. Um, and uh, But what else he wanted, that was never really clear. He comes from a Christian Democrat uh, background, so it's more uh, socially a more conservative agenda. But many times he actually, um, he's more intellectual and he has the difficulties answering very concretely to, to very simple questions. So it was never really quite clear what he wanted. But nevertheless, people saw in him some kind of uh, reformer, some, some a person who was always straight and honest. Um, but his political program was not really clear. However, in the Dutch system, um, you always need more parties to form a government. And there has never been a party that has a majority. Um, and since he is basically conservative, more on the right wing, uh, the extreme right parties, the BBB and the PVV, together with the Liberal Party, the VVD, that's the party of parting uh, Prime Minister Mark Rutte, they thought, well, together we form a, uh, a majority, together we can form a right bloc. But actually, uh, it, it, it was all built on on, on very in, in very unstable uh, foundations. Mm. So what happens now? What are the possible permutations of, of a government? Nobody knows. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, that's the particularity of the Dutch system. Uh, the formations of a government can take a very, very long time. The last one was in 2022, that lasted 300 days. Um, now we're already three months after the elections, and basically they have to start again. The three parties that are now at the table, the NSC, the VVD, the BBB, and the PVV, a lot of abbreviations. I'm sorry, uh, they don't have a majority, um, so they will have to find a way to maybe form a minority government, which is technically also possible. And then every time the government has to deal with the parliament to see if they can find a majority. Another option would be that the uh, the left-wing party, uh, the Labour Party and the Greens, uh, will take the lead. They became the second largest party in the country. And then they try to form a government. But then the problem, of course, is that a lot of voters uh, that voted for the extreme right will feel, feel um, well, deceived, and then uh, maybe uh, in the next elections, Geert Wilders may win even more votes. So it's actually a, a very complicated situation. Um, Dutch coalition government uh, negotiations are really always very complicated, but this is this is new territory. So uh, this morning, uh, the three remaining parties will meet again uh, in The Hague to discuss the current situation. But the thing is also that there are currently many crises in the Netherlands that have to be resolved. The economy, uh, interestingly enough, is not one of them. So the the concerns of Peter Omtzigt about the money is actually not really based in any reality because the, the Dutch government finances are in extremely good health. Um, the unemployment is very low. The, the, the economical situation of the country is very healthy. Um, but the other two problems are mainly climate change and a fast rising population. And these problems have to be tackled very, very quickly. Uh, and the Dutch voters simply cannot wait any longer to have a new government. But as it seems now, uh, there won't be any new government before the summer. And then it becomes interesting because there are new elections in June, the European elections, mm -hmm. uh, which could become, which could 
give a totally different outcome than the last elections. And then the, the current parties at the table are confronted, will be confronted with a completely new problem. Uh, it doesn't really look like that that Dutch will have a new government anytime soon. Uh, so The Hague is doing very badly, but the country is doing well. So, I mean, you talk about Wilder's uh, popularity possibly increasing. We know that uh, it's now, his approval rating is now 32% uh, 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 of, of voter support. That's up from 24% in November. There was another poll that happened uh, early February. It showed that his party would win 50 seats if an election were held today. That's 13 more than it did in, in November. Now, I, I appreciate that, that, that no government has, has has governed alone there, but no party has governed alone there. But could this be a waiting game? Could Wilders and the Party for Freedom govern alone if they leave it long enough, if his popularity increases uh, to this degree? Yeah, that could be part of his strategy. However, uh, what is really uh, surprising is that Geert Wilders is now the longest serving MP in the Netherlands. He's been there for over a quarter of a century. Um, he has he has once uh, sort of less supported a minority government, uh, but he never actually um, succeeded anything in Dutch politics. And yet he is very um, popular, uh, at least in the ratings. And this shows how volatile actually the Dutch electorate is. They go from left to right, from extreme left uh, to extreme right. Uh, and even somebody like Geert Wilders, who only talks and, and never has done anything in polit- in, in, to achieve anything for the country, um, he has no track record uh, whatsoever what- other than uh, polarizing actually Dutch politics. He is still very popular. So it shows that the Dutch voters are yeah, they don't really know what they want. Uh, the country is doing really well, uh, also compared to other European countries, which is also a paradox because usually the extreme right wins a lot of votes in, in areas where the economy is lagging behind. But that's not really the case. At the last elections, Gilt Wilders had a lot of votes also uh, in urban areas and not only in, 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 in uh, rural areas. So um, it is actually um, a big question mark. What does the Dutch voter want? Uh, they change every every two, three years of, of political political opinion and that could be very well the case there may be new elections uh, if there's no new government before the end of the year but then again what will be the result and it would be very likely that they still won't be able to form a government but it's absolutely clear that Geert Wilders is on a roll here uh, and I think as long as he doesn't govern as long as he doesn't take part in in real politics uh, to 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 manage the country then he will become he will stay popular but as soon as he becomes prime minister then he will have to show what he actually uh, can do for the country. And then I think many, many of his voters will be very disappointed. But we won't know. There's still no government. It can take many, many more months. Stefan de Vries, thank you. Still to come on the programme, we hear from the head of the Nobel Peace Prize winning Ukrainian Centre of Civil Liberties. Victory for Ukraine also means to succeed in democratic transition of our country to build sustainable democratic institutions. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, 
we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Globalist on Monocle Radio, I'm Georgina Godwin. It's 7.24 in London and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Yasmin Abdel-Majid, who is a Sudanese-Australian broadcaster and author. And it's always a pleasure to see your smiling face here in the studio. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you, Georgina. Uh, Let's start with this EU deal. So it's uh, something they've signed with Mauritania and it's all to do with migration. That's right. So the Guardian's reporting the Spain and, and the EU to sign this migration deal as people smuggling rises. And this is so the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, um, and the Spanish Prime Minister have flown to Mauritania to essentially because data reveals there's been a surge of people smuggling operations to the Canary Islands. And what I, what's interesting about this, and the piece sort of talks about the European Union understanding that migration from the continent, from the African continent, is one of the major kind of domestic issues that they're dealing with. Um, but what I find interesting is this the sort of externalization of European borders, really, because this is not the first time the EU and, and Frontex, um, the EU border agency, have tried to push the responsibility almost of the borders and the responsibility of, of uh stemming the flow of migrants uh, to African countries. We know that they signed a deal with um, Sudanese leaders in, in the late 2010s. Um, they're also looking at, you know, w- uh, signing with, with Senegal and so on. And so the data shows that, yes, there were over 7,000 people who were smuggled um, across the, the border um, in 2023, which was um, in January, I should say, to, uh, to, uh, this year, up 500 from the same month in, in 2023. And Frontex has recorded almost 400,000 quote-unquote irregular border crossings, um, the highest number since 2016. So there is this increase in migration numbers. But I think it's interesting also because there's a new head of Frontex. And uh, Frontex, which is the European border agency, has been mired in allegations of human rights violations and so on. And so the new head is trying to sort of say that DNA, that human rights will be part of our DNA. And it's interesting to see whether or not this will actually pan out. Absolutely. And of course, more investment is needed within various regions of Africa, particularly West Africa, where you look at what's happening in, in Mali and in Burkina Faso, uh, all of those places which used to have a lot of uh, French support. Now all of that's gone. And and there's uh, we're looking really at, at, at a lot of problems across that region. And of course, that, that plus climate change mm. is driving migration. Definitely. And this is not a problem that's going away. So this might be, you know, one of the first deals that we start to see. But I do think think that there will continue to be deals between Europe, which is the the closest place that a lot of migrants will head to. But across the Sahel, as you mentioned, there are lots of different conflicts. People are looking for options. There aren't so many legal migration routes, you know, and there's this kind of conflation also between uh, migrants who sort of are quote unquote illegal and migrants that come through legal routes. But really, it's very difficult for many of these individuals to travel to Europe at all. And so this, I think, is the beginning, well, the continuation of a of a challenge for Europe that will continue. Let's have a look at Sudan now. And um, uh, we're hearing that uh, an internet blackout has returned to the country. The UN also asking for much more money in aid. That's right. So the situation in Sudan, unfortunately, um, only seems to be getting worse. And, And since Friday, there were... 
there was sensors, there was an internet blackout in some regions, and then it came back over the weekend. But now the um, reports are that there is a sort of almost total internet blackout, which is concerning for many reasons. primarily because typically when this has happened in the past, um, it has been to cover, you know, great violations um, of human rights and and massacres and so on. And the latest uh, situation report from the UN says that there are almost 11 million people now displaced by the conflict. Um, One in two people needing humanitarian aid in the country, so we're talking over 24 million. And the UN is requesting a $4 billion package um, of which only like 3% has been pledged. And so we're in a situation where, you know, famine is at the doorstep of many individuals. The the humanitarian situation is catastrophic. But of course, there are so many different challenges internationally right now that none of the funding really is getting to where it needs to be. And and activists have been, have been sort of calling, especially with this internet blackout, have been trying to sort of remind people that this conflict is continuing, remind people that things aren't really changing. Yes, there have been attempts at ceasefires. Yes, there have been... I saw um, even Switzerland at the moment is trying to get the two generals together to talk about aid packages and so on. But but it's been largely unsuccessful um, attempts by the international community to bring a resolution to the conflict. So at the very least, humanitarian aid is desperately required. Mm. Uh, Tell us, what are the world's papers saying on the latest in Gaza? Right. So... The situation in Gaza, another very complex situation. Um, the the most recent report, of course, is about the airstrikes on the southern Rafah city, which has, um, the most recent, has killed 14 civilians. Um, but generally, uh, Israel's leader Netanyahu ordering attacks on Rafah, um, a, a city that is sheltering over 1.2 million people. And that comes at the same time as rejecting Hamas's plan for a truce agreement. And and this is, I think, we're starting to see some changes in the uh, the language coming from, you know, the key allies like the United States, who are sort of, you know, Hillary Clinton came out and said this, you know, this was kind of going too far. Um, Blinken is trying to kind of push the ceasefire proposal with Palestinian leaders. But Netanyahu is saying there is no solution and the total elimination of Hamas um, is, is his position. And, you know, the, the quote is surrendering to Hamas's delusional demands won't lead to freeing the captives. It'll just invite another massacre. But of course, this is, you know, it, it puts everyone in a very difficult position when, when that is the very hard line of Netanyahu. I mean, also what we're seeing is the defunding of un. Uh, UNRWA, the, the sort of the humanitarian aid provider in Gaza, Norway has actually pledged um, $26 million to UNRWA the, in order to support uh, Palestinian refugees. But, you know, almost a dozen countries, including the United States, have rescinded their funding. And there is also talk of of a, a total ban of funding to UNRWA. And so you, you on one hand, you're seeing Blinken, Secretary um, Blinken, trying to push for a ceasefire or not for a ceasefire, trying to at least push for Netanyahu to um, to cede or, or to come to some sort of agreement. But on the other hand, you're seeing this removal of funding and so on. So there, there is this tension still. Absolutely. Uh, Yasmin, very quickly before we go, you are Sudanese-Australian. I'm Zimbabwean. I was 20 before I saw snow. I don't know how familiar you are with snow or indeed skiing. <laughs> well, similarly, the first time I saw snow was in my late 20s when I moved to England um, and I decided that I needed to learn how to ski. But that isn't necessarily something many people 
people will be able to do in the future because the reports are because of climate change. Skiing is becoming more and more expensive. Um, there is less and less snow and the middle classes might be pushed out um, of skiing completely because there, there just isn't enough snow anymore. Oh, shame. Yeah. <laughs> what Sorry, will people I'm do? Well, <laughs> There'll still be schnapps, right? There will Our be. Our press there will be. Still, still exists. So for non-skiers like, well, like me. Yeah. I mean, I can say I skied like a handful of times. I don't know if I would call myself a skier just yet. The thing that shocked me the most when I got up onto the mountain was there was no instructions. They just let me out onto the snow. And I thought, I remember thinking to myself, this seems rather dangerous. I've got no idea what I'm doing. I'm just going to fly off the edge of the mountain here. And um, that is kind of what did happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> the first time I went in a ski lift was last year. Oh, my goodness. Uh, with, with our uh, editorial director, Tyler Brulé, holding my hand because <laughs> I was so frightened I'd never been on a ski <laughs> lift before. He did buy us lots of champagne at the top of the mountain, though, which made up for it. Exactly. Thank heavens I didn't have to ski down. Uh, yes, man, thank you very much indeed. Uh, now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Republicans in the US Senate have defeated a bipartisan effort to bolster border security that's taken months to negotiate, but said they could still approve aid for Ukraine and Israel that was tied up in the deal. The Senate is expected to vote today on a $96 billion package that strips out the immigration provisions but leaves the foreign aid intact. Pakistan temporarily suspended mobile phone services today to strengthen security as voting began in the country's national election. This comes amidst a rise in militant attacks in the run-up to the poll. The country's on high alert, with tens of thousands of troops and paramilitary soldiers on duty across the country, including at polling stations and at the borders with Iran and Afghanistan, which are closed for the day. And the world has just experienced its hottest January on record, continuing a run of exceptional heat fuelled by climate change, the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service said this morning. In the 2015 Paris Agreement, countries agreed to try and prevent global warming surpassing 1.5 degrees Celsius to avoid it unleashing more severe and irreversible consequences. The target's not yet been officially breached as it refers to an average global temperature over decades, but some scientists have said the goal can no longer realistically be met. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. In 2022, the Ukrainian non-profit organisation Centre of Civil Liberties won the Nobel Peace Prize together with pro-democracy groups in Belarus and Russia. Alexandra Matvichuk heads the organisation and she spoke to Monocle's Julia Lassica about why accountability in the war is so important and what comes next in Ukraine's defence against Russia. The future is unclear and unguaranteed, but we have a chance to fight for future which we want. And this is a huge luxury to have such a chance. And we see victory very ambitious. Victory for Ukraine is not just to repeal Russian troops out from Ukrainian territory and to restore international order, to release people in occupied territories. But victory for Ukraine also means to succeed in democratic transition of our country to build sustainable democratic institutions. One of the most important topics you talk about is international accountability for Russia's war crimes. Can you tell us why that's important? Last week, obviously, there was the ICJ ruling on Israel and Gaza, which sort of plays into the whole conversation about bringing countries to accountability. What 
in the context of the world right now. Can you tell us about that? It's a common sense. If we want to stop wars in the globe, we have to punish states and authoritarian leaders who study such wars. And the problem is that in the whole history of humankind, we have only one such a precedent. It was Nuremberg trial last century. And it was a trial where Nazi war criminals were tried, but after their regime had collapsed. And we have no other such international court which have jurisdiction to prosecute Putin and top political leadership and high military command of Russian state for the crime of aggression. This means that we have urgently to create a special tribunal and to hold these people accountable. And can you tell us also about your part of the kind of new generation of Ukrainians after the 2014 revolution? Can you tell us about why Ukrainian society has been so strong throughout, you know, since the 2014 beginning of this whole war and then 2022, the full-scale invasion? Why has Ukraine been able to withstand and to have such strong voices in the international dialogue? During the Revolution of Dignity, millions of Ukrainians stood up their voice against corrupt and authoritarian regimes. They bravely took a, to the street across the country and fight just for a chance to build a country where the rights of everybody are protected, government is accountable, judiciary is independent, and police do not beat students who are peacefully demonstrating. And we paid a rather high price for this chance because more than 100 peaceful protesters were gunning down in the main square of the city. And what is important reason for such behavior? Because if you take any sociological survey, you will see that Ukrainians always put freedom in the first place of hierarchy of values. And so last year, obviously, your name became known all around the globe because you won the Nobel Peace Prize. Can you tell us about what winning that prize meant for the struggle, for the Ukrainian struggle? Has it added anything? Did it give some sort of recognition that was maybe missing before? What has it changed? For decades, the voice of human rights defenders from our part of the world wasn't heard because we told that Russia is violated uh, the rights of their own citizens because Russia prosecutes journalists, jailed activists and dispersed peaceful demonstrations, uh, that Russia conducts horrible war crimes in other countries like Syria, like Mali, Libya, Georgia, and they have never punished for this. Uh, but even well-developed democracies, they close their eyes for these facts and they continue to do business as usual with Russia. They shake in Putin's hands, they build a house pipeline. And this leads to a situation that Russians start to believe they can do whatever they wanted. Because peace and human rights are inextricably linked. And country which violate um, human rights obligation, such country provide a threat not just for their own citizens, but to the peace in the world as a whole. And now this Nobel Peace Prize provides the voice of human rights defenders the opportunity to be heard. Yeah, but you won it, of course, alongside a Belarusian activist and a Belarusian group and a Russian group. What is the role of Russians and Belarusians now? Do Ukrainians, do Ukrainians have to work with them? Is there a sort of feeling that there has to be some sort of collaboration between like-minded Ukrainians, Belarusians, Russians? What has to happen next? 
The problem is that it's not just Putin's war. This is a war of Russian nation, because majority of Russians either supports war or uh, state a position non-objection to the war, So, which means they, they silently supported this all atrocities which is going on. But among this majority, there is uh, people who have the courage to stood up against this war. Among them, my brave human rights Russian colleagues like uh, Memorial and other famous uh, human rights organization which now were destroyed and liquidated in Russia. And uh, we closely cooperate with uh, them regardless of war, even more, we need their assistance because we have thousands and thousands illegally detained civilians in Russia and for us the only way even just to understand where they are, it's uh, our brave Russian human rights colleague who uh, decided to stay in the country regardless of the fact that can face very easily uh, criminal prosecutions. So we have to understand we are in a war and societies uh, it's very naturally take a distance between each other but for us as for human rights defenders who see the world through the same human rights prisma, it's very important to continue cooperation. That was Alexandra Matvichuk speaking to Julia Lassica. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. It's 15.41 in Beijing, that's 8.41 in Zurich. And let's have a quick look at China now. On the line is Rebecca Chun-Wilkins, an Asia government and economy correspondent for Bloomberg News. She joins us from Hong Kong. Uh, Rebecca, Mexico's overtaking China as the biggest exporter to the US. What do the latest figures show and why has this happened? Yes, it's the first time we've seen this dynamic, this change in dynamic in about two decades. And it really reflects two sort of key things. The first is this diversification of supply chains, companies all over the world sort of increasingly seeking to find uh, an alternative outpost and not just have all of uh, their supply chain and all of their products rely uh, on China, for example, trying to look to so-called third countries. Um, And so that has led to growing capacity uh, for manufacturing in in Mexico. Um, and the other element is a sort of explicit US policy. It has increased tariffs. It has made it essentially more expensive uh, for China to export certain goods to, to the US. So I think from Beijing's point of view, this is sort of a shifting dynamic that in some ways has been well anticipated. And in fact, in some ways has also been sort of um, that Chinese firms have participated in this in this trend by, for example, moving to Mexico or moving to other parts of Southeast Asia to move some part of their manufacturing and actually export from a third country into the US. Mm. Now, Xi Jinping's government appears to be increasingly alarmed at a dramatic stock market downturn. I wonder if you could tell us about this. They replaced the head of the securities regulator on, on Wednesday. Obviously, that would have been a shock. And I wonder if it's going to have political ramifications. Yes, this is certainly a really, really big story. And in part, it's sort of been uh, magnified because we're just coming down to Lunar New Year. And that's a period where we see markets shut down for uh, six days. Uh, And so we've seen this huge sell-off in in Chinese stocks, about more than 8 trillion US dollars, actually. And the biggest concern here, I think, for Beijing is less so the institutional investors, but particularly the millions of Chinese mom-and-pop retail investors 
in Chinese equities. Um, they have very few places to turn at the moment, actually, because of the crisis that we've seen in the property market. That's no longer a safe place to park your cash. And now there's so much pain in equities. Um, so we have seen Beijing picking up some sort of showing a greater sense of urgency to try and stop this sell-off. Um, they have replaced the head of the regulators. That came quite a surprise, in fact. Uh, some sources telling us that there was no internal announcement from the uh, Communist Party's organization department ahead of that. And there are sort of echoes of the past here. We saw a very similar huge stock market crash back in 2015 through 2016. And we again saw the regulator removed then. It took a much longer time. And there is growing pressure, I think, this time around because of the broader economic weakness that we're seeing in China. There is much more pressure from ordinary Chinese people, the middle class and retail investors for President Xi Jinping to step in and take some kind of action to try and stabilise and improve confidence in markets. Rebecca, thank you very much indeed. That's Rebecca Chun Wilkins in Hong Kong. And now it's time to talk fashion with Dana Thomas, the Paris-based author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and The Future of Clothes. She joins me now from the world's largest fabric fair. It's called Premier Vision. Uh, but Dana, many thanks for coming on the show. You're at Premier Vision uh, and what you're seeing there is what a fully next-gen fashion collection looks like. Do you tell us. <laughs> Yes, it's really thrilling. You know, I, I wrote about Premier Vision in my book, Fashionopolis, and I went out to visit the sustainable materials division of this enormous fashion fabric or fabric fair that takes place out by Charles de Gaulle Airport in a in a huge, well, they call it an exposition park. I mean, it's gigantic. And back then it was like a little section of the of the fair. There were maybe 12 or 15 stands cut in one of the far-flung halls, way in the back of the place. You had to go through the leather division to get to it, which was sort of, you know, like, who thought that out? And because you're going to have all the, you know, vegans going (laughs) through this division. And uh, and it was tiny and it was a little bit depressing. So I hadn't been back since, and I went last night. And it's now in the main hall, smack in the center. It's a, they call it a hub. You know, it's, it's its own thing. It's grown and it's got really extraordinary materials, new, what we call next-gen materials, next-generation, many of them biofabricated, which means they're, they're made in biology labs as opposed to grown in the, fa- in the fields. And they're made without petroleum, which is a really big deal because th- two-thirds of our clothes today are made with petroleum-based materials, polyester, nylon, neoprene, when you know, surfers are having a are trying to figure out what they can wear that doesn't have petroleum in it. So there's all these cool new materials. And there's I saw a leather that was made out of uh, fish collagen left over from the fish industry. And it really looks like it's they call it a leather-like material because the leather industry says you can't use the word leather. But it really does look like leather. It feels like leather. It, it withstands this life like leather does. And it's, it's made of, um, you know, this recycled waste and that's what they call in this uh, in this area feedstock and they say there's feedstock everywhere whether it's old t-shirts being turned into you know new cotton regenerated cotton or or old blue jeans turned into regenerated cotton or you know there's there's stuff everywhere that we can use that we haven't been using so that's what I'm I was looking at yesterday and it was really cool there was some regenerative cotton shirts made from from India 
from a farm that really does work, think about the soil first and the cotton grows beautifully. And actually, no, he, what he told me is they're growing this cotton in a hydroponic greenhouse. So there isn't even soil involved. It's a whole new approach to growing cotton. And, and I saw this fake, this new um, alternative to fur that is, and that's made out of natural materials and is, but isn't petroleum based like most. And then another thing called bio puff that is filling for like puffy jackets and comforters that's made from cattail stuffing. You know, those cattails that you see growing in the wild next to the beaches. Oh, not well, real they, cats. No, the cattails, <laughs> the, those, those reedy weedy things that yeah. look like like fat cigars and you explode them and they're filled with puffiness and they're using that as filler for these, for puffy coats and for, um, comforters and anything. And it's just as warm as down. So you're not harming animals and, and you're using something that's out there in waste. Dana, what do we do with our grandmother's mink coats? What do we do with our antique fur? Is it well, okay to wear it? Absolutely. And I actually have a, my grandmother's very dynasty-like fur from the 80s that I wore on my birthday. And, you know, better to be wearing something and than throwing it away. Please don't ever throw clothes away. And I did have my grandmother's 1950s tiny little fur that have finally disintegrated. So we put it in the compost because that's where, you know, it can go back into the earth. But uh, try, let's, let's not buy new fur if we can. And, yeah. and at some point, fur is going to cycle out, as, I, as will reptile skins. These guys who made the, the fake, uh, not the fake, the, the, the leather-like material out of fish, fish collagen, they can make that leather-like material look like anything. So it can look like snake. It can look like, you know, lizard it can look like crocodile and you don't have to i mean those farms are the nastiest things what i wrote deluxe i actually didn't have the guts to go visit one yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh then a very very quick look at chanel because they've just won a legal battle yes they did they've been suing all sorts of uh secondhand dealers for trademark infringement and false association and unfair competition claims and they went after a big company called what goes around comes around and they won because they said it makes it sound like they're the company is associated with Chanel when they are absolutely not and at times they wind up selling counterfeits that they believe are real but aren't real and so Chanel said you can't do this anymore and they won it's kind it's a big deal because um yeah the the non-genuine part they're going to have to hold these companies much more Care, stricter to making sure about 100% authenticity and but also being careful not to because they were using Chanel in their ads saying look we sell Chanel as if they were you know not if they were Chanel but mm. Chanel said it looked like they were it's a blow to um to secondhand retailing but one of the reasons that brands are going after the secondhand retailers like this is because they want a piece of the pie and they are getting into it now though they're doing it discreetly through you know different companies mm. They aren't doing it themselves because it it seems as unseemly, and they might be, and they're afraid they're going to, you know, cannibalize their their new market within their own stores. But they are they are moving into the secondhand reselling market themselves. Dana, thank you very much indeed. That's Dana Thomas there, and this is the Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over nine hundred investment analysts from over one hundred different countries. 
over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. turn our attention to Dubai now, in the UAE, where demand for luxury property is growing and global brands are moving in. I'm joined now by Ali Bohani, a strategy expert based in Dubai and managing director of 360 Strategic Advisors. Ali is also co-host of BRI Dialogues. Welcome, Ali. Uh, that's a long title. What do you actually do? I mostly advise companies, ultra high net worth individuals and family offices on strategy, whether it's market entry strategy into new geographies and emerging markets, or um, the issues with the pains of succession planning and transition to the next gen. And I'm based in London, Georgina. Now, Just, but you, did, you were in yeah, Dubai yeah, yeah, for many very years. Much so, very much so, yes. And, and of course, because of your time there, you, you can tell us wh- where the demand for top-end property is coming from. Well, historically, this has been um, a foray that Dubai was, you know, very quick to move into. And um, but ultra high net worth individuals and high net worth individuals are the key takers of these properties. And um, what they're looking for is what I coined as an S5, a seamless inflow of capital, uh, sanctuary for themselves and their families. Uh, speculation is part of it because when they buy into a brand, they can you know flip it and turn it depending on geographical and geopolitical circumstances and status and lifestyle and sun helps as well. Mm. And um, you know, China and India and the global South, uh, rising number of ultra high net worth individuals. So these people are key takers of these properties. And super rich conflict migrants from Russia, Ukraine, and sadly, you know, with what's happening in the Middle East, uh, depending on how things unfold, these webs uh, ebb and flow of the wave of, you know, uh, investors comes and goes. But post-Abraham Accords, a lot of Israelis have invested in Dubai as well. And just to put it into context, uh, in the past two years, 800 family offices moved from um, China to Singapore. But in the past two years, 4,000 ultra high net worth individuals have moved to Dubai. (laughs) Just to contextualize the sheer size of uh, movement of capital and investors. Mm. And and how sustainable is this? Well, it's very important to look at it from, you know, where Dubai is. Uh, According to a research, uh, interesting piece by Knight Frank, 51 branded luxury projects are completed, another 48 in pipeline. The total transactions of Dubai property, including land and non-residential and residential, including the um, branded properties, were $173 billion, (laughs) which is a whopping figure. And there are around 3,800 to 3,900 new branded residence units in pipeline, Georgina, between now and 2026 and 2027. So the key question is, is it sustainable? Where is it going? Where is distraction and coming from? But Dubai has wind in its sails uh, because of the instability in the region, the way they have mastered offering the service to the mm. demanding clientele. And there are sound bites on the ground that Ras al may be uh, finally having uh, Steve Wynn uh, property with 1,000 rooms. And we know Steve Wynn is a casino operator. So maybe Dubai is 
aiming to be the Monaco of the Middle East. Who knows? <laughs> mm. Tell us what these projects look like and what these brands are offering. Well, um, the sky is the limit, to be honest with you. Um, the the projects are mostly focused on having services and amenities from the best branded spas in them. Um, latest transaction was, you know, one of them, Bulgari um, Lighthouse for eighty-eight million pounds <laughs> on Palm Jumeirah, and um, and a uh, price per square foot for six thousand eight hundred and twenty pounds per square foot. So you have butler services, you have integrated services. Hangers even for the private jets, you know, if they <laughs> need to be in, uh, you know, uh, in any part of the world. So the infrastructure in Dubai has been very alluring and inviting, and it's a safe destination for a lot of ultra-high-net-worth individuals. So they can shut the door, go to Verbier, and come back and be assured that the Monet or Ai Weiwei is still on the wall. <laughs> uh, and if we come down from atop these lofty skyscrapers, what's the sense on the ground? Uh, Listen, everybody says Dubai has uh, somewhat, you know, can Dubai defy gravity for that matter or not? And historically, everybody on the critics of Dubai say Dubai benefits uh, not only from return on investment of having developed the infrastructure, but also what I say return on instability and other ROI. And that is A-OK to say that because you have Russia, Ukraine, Libya, Syria, um, it's a, you know, um, a, a not the most stable neighborhood in the world. And Dubai becomes a safe haven. But it would be unfair as well to say that Dubai hasn't been, I would say, pragmatic enough to develop this infrastructure. So there's one thing as return on instability, but return on investment. I don't know how familiar you are with Dubai, but they have built their own Dubai Eye, and they call mm-hmm. it Ain Dubai, which means Dubai Eye. And like, you know, the Ferris wheel that goes up and down, every take uh, of a turn of the market uh, from 2008 and the fall of the real estate market, it goes around, but the queue continues. So there are people to get on on that Ferris wheel, and the gravity doesn't defy Dubai at the moment, for, for, for what I can tell. Ali, thank you very much indeed. That is Ali Bahani uh, joining us here on The Globalist. And that's all for today's edition of the programme. Many thanks to our producers, Emma Searle, Chris Chermack and Laura Kramer, our researcher, Neoma Ekwe, and our studio manager, Tamsin Howard. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London and The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. And just looking ahead, if you'd like to listen to our Meet the Writers program, which you can find through our website. Uh, Paul Garana Galizia is my guest this week. Uh, He is the son of Daphne Garana Galizia, the Maltese journalist who was murdered uh, a few years ago. He's written a wonderful book about that uh, and uh, the continuing investigation into her death. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.